I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. I don't actually have a little thing, but Happy New Year! Happy New Year! You made it, everybody. Welcome to 2019. It's... I don't know. We're recording this in advance. Everything could be on fire for all I know, but probably not. Hopefully. We'll see. And that brings us to our annual New Year special where we talk about some very special anniversaries that may have been overlooked over the last year. Happy 100th anniversary to one of the deadliest disease outbreaks in recorded history. Is I got, it, I got my streamers, I got my big novelty New Year glasses, yeah. Yeah. That's just what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, that's great, because we're going to talk about the 1918 influenza pandemic, also known as the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is a thing, or event, where uh, 500 million people were infected worldwide uh, during the outbreak. Or a third of the population, mm-hmm. uh, with an original estimated forty to fifty million deaths, but that number is now believed to be closer to fifty to a hundred million uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. So three to five percent of the world population at the time died. That's all I need. Uh, good night, folks. Uh- <laughs> Happy twenty nineteen. <2019. laughs> We just had to go, like, I guess, enter this uh, new year with a really uplifting story. See, after the last few, I was hoping to do some more, like, human interest stories. Something really upbeat, maybe. <laughs> no. I mean, it was this or, like, a train disaster. Sure, sure. <laughs> or a whole lot of sheep dying. Okay. Those were the picks I had. Just to kind of put it into perspective for you more, mm-hmm. uh, it probably killed about 15 million people in just like the first 25 weeks. Okay. So half of the year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In like, you know, five and a half months, mm-hmm. 15 million people died, probably. Often in like historical context, if you're like, what uh, is the deadliest disease? The Black Death will come up mm-hmm. as like number one. It's right in the name. Uh, And then, like, the Spanish flu outbreak. But the Spanish flu actually killed more people. Mm -hmm. The Black Death just killed a higher percentage of what was a smaller world population at the time. Right, right. So, there's something to know. Okay. When you're, like, looking at, like, top five things that killed people. (laughs) Like how Gordie Howe's numbers aren't that impressive today, but he was playing against a world-class team every night because the league was so small. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so what was the Spanish flu? It was a flu. <laughs> I in case you didn't get hope. it. Uh, it was caused I'm by... I'm going to guess it's not particularly Spanish, though. <laughs> oh, we'll get there in a second. Okay. Uh, but it was caused by the H1N1 virus uh, and had exceptionally high death rates, uh, especially in... Previously healthy people between the ages of 20 to 40, mm-hmm. which is really unusual for the flu. Right. Those uh, are the people who say, I'm fine. I don't need a flu shot. I'm normally healthy in between 20 to 40. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, flu normally, like, hits hardest on the youngest and the oldest because mm-hmm. they have weakened immune systems. It was not the case with this, which we'll talk about later. Uh, it also had... 
an extremely high infection rate of up to 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, why was it called the Spanish flu? Do you, do you, do you have a guess? I'm going to guess it's like the, the other side of the coin from why it's called Spanish rice. Spanish rice is a, is a Mexican dish. It doesn't come from Spain, but it was called Spanish to make it seem uh, uh, less, well, Mexican, so you could sell it to Americans. I'm going to guess that, that it is trading on the same sort of anti-Hispanic hysteria, but sort of dressing it up nice. Not really? Oh, okay. That's, I mean, that's a good guess. Spanish flu did not originate in Spain, and Spain was not hit the hardest. Okay. And it also was not, like, forced upon them name-wise as a way to discriminate. Okay. Uh, so this was all happening during World War I. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spain was, had remained neutral during this, during the war mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and it was not under any type of wartime censorship. So uh, it was publishing news reports of the flu freely uh-huh. and reporting on it. Unlike other uh, countries that were involved in the war, like Germany and the UK and France and the US, they were on wartime censorship and they didn't want to mess with wartime morale or let the enemy know that there was sickness. So there was a ban on writing anything about the flu. Oh. So this made it seem like Spain was being hit the hardest. But just because they were the only people talking about it. Yeah. You know, the UK couldn't write anything about it to begin with. They could post, like, repost talking about what was going on in Spain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They just wouldn't say, oh, we are experiencing this too. Now, this eventually did change the more out of hand it got. Mm -hmm. But the initial, like, outbreak... Uh, they were just pretending nothing was happening. So you could call it the perceived to be Spanish flu. Yes. And really pad out the word count for, for your college papers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a nickname that came about because they were talking about it. Because hmm. a lot of times, yeah, it does go because, oh, we want to put blame on someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really like, no, they're just being honest about what's going on in their country. Right. <laughs> So there were uh, early reports of uh, illness happening in the late 1917, or in late 1917, um, in different military locations um, that they didn't initially think was the flu. Mm -hmm. Um, They knew there was like a disease happening and a lot of people were dying, but they didn't say Hey, this looks like the flu. And that's because it had some weird symptoms that didn't near normally like come with just the flu. Not things that you would call flu-like symptoms. Yes. It was being misdiagnosed a lot as like cholera or typhoid. Mm-hmm. It took a while for them to figure out what was going on. <laughs> and then they did start to figure it out. And the flu came kind of in three waves. The first wave, and there's a debate on where and when it exactly started Mm -hmm. and location wise some are like well it happened at this major troop staging area and hospital in france and others are like no it originated in kansas 
Mm-hmm. Um, because there was like a doctor who did observe it and actually like wrote a report saying like, hey, I noticed some weird flu going around. Mm-hmm. Then there's other people who, uh, in like 2014, there was a historian who was like, no, it was definitely the Chinese. <laughs> uh, I was very into this idea through some records he researched that the mobilization of 96,000 Chinese laborers to work behind the scenes on the British and front lines were the source saying like, well, you know, there's these reports of there being a respiratory illness in, in 1917. So it was probably them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in China, you mean? Yes. Like, so they brought it. Mm-hmm. It's their fault. But some other uh, historians have stated that, no, it's not that. We have all this evidence that there was other aspects of this strain, like circulating Europe for months or maybe years, and it was just mutating. Mm-hmm. But the thing everybody agrees is it was the, the wartime mobilization and concentration of these people in in dank, uh, uh, tight quarters. Yes. Um, you know, we had overcrowded camps. We had military hospitals that were treating thousands of uh, victims of just the war, chemical attacks. It's a perfect place to spread disease. The first wave really started in spring of 1918 mm-hmm. um, with flu activity in military camps throughout Europe, um, some cities in the U.S., U.K., a little bit here and there. As an ex- one of the examples I found of how, how kind of quickly this came up was in March 1918, a company cook at Fort Riley was reported sick, which was like the first like official, someone sick with this flu, re- like record. Mm-hmm. Within days, uh, 522 more men at that camp were sick. Well, it was the cook after <laughs> all. <laughs> yep. Probably sneezed in the soup a few too many times. Uh, and then within a week, there were reports in New York City. Um, within a couple months, you know, it had spread France, Sierra Leone, Boston. Like, it was popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, this was still, though, a milder, milder wave. Okay. Where it was popping up across the globe and people were dying. It was nothing compared to what was going to come. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, people who did survive were actually ended up, you know, immune to mm-hmm. what was coming. So they missed the worst of it. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> uh, get it out of the way first. Because uh, the second wave came in September, and that was the deadliest wave. Um, we have to remember this is a time of no vaccines, no antibiotics. All you could do to fight the flu was, like, Good hygiene and quarantine and let's just close places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll be fine. But because of what was going on with the war and military movement, a lot of the things that say you would normally do weren't being weren't happening the same way. Mm-hmm. So like in everyday you- life, if you were really ill, you were going to stay home. If you were only kind of sick, You'd probably go about your daily business mm-hmm. and you'd be spreading your mild symptoms. With the war, it was the exact opposite. Uh, if you were only mildly sick, 
we're going to keep you at the front lines. You'll get better. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. If you're really sick, we're going to throw you on a train with a whole lot of other people and ship you to a military hospital with a whole lot of other people who are also really sick. And you're all going to spread the really bad virus you have that's going to knock out a whole lot of people at once. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the many factors in why things were so bad. Mm -hmm. So as an example of how bad things were, over 100,000 Americans died, like, in October alone. Mm -hmm. Let alone all the other places in the world that this is happening, because it was literally everywhere. But I will say that uh, that year for Halloween, skeletons were dirt cheap. Yeah. You could find them anywhere. Yeah. But, well, maybe the next year, once they're <laughs> actually, like decomposing. All right, it takes a little DIY. It's a bit of a craft project. <laughs> um, but the se So the second wave of the flu was, however, very swift. So as an example, in uh, Philadelphia, uh, like 4,500 people died in a week alone in mid-October. By mid-November, the virus had almost like disappeared. Mm -hmm. People weren't dying left and right. Um, it was mutating so fast that, you know, all of its hosts would just die and then they would, like, couldn't really carry on mm -hmm. is what, um, why they think it kind of came in these, like, everyone's dead and now we're kind of okay for a while. Mm -hmm. So there was a third wave uh, that happened late 18 or late 1918 early 1919 and that ran through the spring but it was incredibly minimal compared to that second wave where 100,000 people are dying in a month well I mean, you got you got to figure that by then the the people who had survived had, had got their antibodies they they yeah. were inoculated yeah um you had wiped out the people you were going to wipe out yeah so as I've mentioned, um, pretty much every place on the planet was hit. 28% um, of the U.S. population was infected. And about 500,000 to uh, 675,000 people died. Uh, Native American tribes were hit the hardest. Um, entire Native Alaskan communities were wiped out. 5% hmm. of India's population, which is, uh, was about 17 million at the time, died. Uh, Indonesia had 1.5 million of its 30 million people die, and about 13% of Tahiti's population died in a month, Oof. and uh, 8 to 22% of um, Iran's population. Swiping people out. Uh, the Pacific Islands were hit really hard. Um, a lot of it was because, like, ships that were going... You know, were already on their way and weren't being stopped before they were kind of realizing how bad things were. Right, right. Um, Western Samoa had 90% of its population infected. And the most likely to die were those between, like, the young adult ages. And within that, uh, pregnant women. It was actually, there was a historian that said, like, if you were pregnant during this time, it was almost a death sentence. Uh, and there was some research that was done on, um, like, 13 hospitals within the time of the pandemic. And 
the scale across the hospitals was between 23 to 71% of pregnant women in the hospital died. Depending on which one. I'm still just picturing all the nice, wonderful listeners at home (laughs) with their (laughs) half-full champagne bottles sweeping up confetti. Well, there were a few places that made it less affected by the disease. Uh, And that was uh, Japan. Okay. They uh, put in some really strict um, restrictions for sea travel immediately that led to a very, very small mortality rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were some quarantines that did happen in America, American Samoa and the French colony of New Caledonia. And they actually had no one die. Oh, well, that's nice. So we should just, like, quarantine the world. I I guess. (laughs) Too many people are dying. We need to stop doing the war. Because of the war? No, no, no. Because of the disease. After the disease is done, we can keep doing war. You know, if they probably would have said that, it would have been a lot better. Those those dead people are the okay dead people. <laughs> um, so why why was this so bad? Especially since the, the virus, it seems, was going around for a while, and it continued to circulate as a seasonal virus for decades. Why, why was this time period terrible? Mm-hmm. And we already talked about the one factor of military movement... Um, and the way they dealt with um, those who were very sick on mm-hmm. the front lines. Uh, it was also a time of increased travel in the world, um, not only with uh, you know the military and soldiers, but there were more uh, sailors and shipments across the sea, and just like people traveling right. or immigrating. There are some that were saying for a while that the virus was just straight up more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2007, research uh, came out that says, well, it really wasn't. It was the special circumstances, mm-hmm. wartime, malnourishment, um, just poor hygiene or poor hygiene of 1918 mm-hmm. um, was definitely a factor. There has also been research done where, you know, they pulled the virus from frozen victims. Okay. In, Where in, did they find these frozen victims from 1918? Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, it's across the world. There's places where you're just going to bury someone. They're going to stay frozen. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it showed the virus caused um, rapid respiratory failure and death through something called uh, through cytokine storm which is an overreaction of your body's immune system. It basically, like, overproduces immune cells that, like, surge into your lungs and your lungs inflame and fluid builds up and it leads to respiratory distress and bacterial pneumonia. Uh Uh-huh. So basically, if you had a strong immune system, your body would be attacked faster through this process um, if your immune system was weaker, you had a better chance of surviving. So that explains the uh, less common distribution of deaths among young adults. Yep. Ah. Um, and now 99% of deaths in the U.S. were people under the age of 65, half of those being 20 to 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really explains that factor of it. Um, you have... You're dealing with that, and you're also dealing with the fact that these people are probably involved in war efforts mm-hmm. and are experiencing the effects of that as well, and then getting sick. 
So it's just playing into that pool of people. Right. Another thing factor that plays into this is in uh, 2014, more research came out that um, looked at the evolution of viruses. Mm-hmm. And that those born after 1889 were not as uh, were not exposed as kids to this type of flu that struck in 1918. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked at like the evolution, as I said, of this flu strain, and they connected it in history to a dominant flu strain in 1830. Um, and there was like a closer related H1 flu in like 1900. Uh, or people born around then would have, like, children would have been exposed to, too. But there was kind of this weird gap. Mm-hmm. Because in 1889, when there was a flu outbreak, it was uh, one that was nicknamed the Russian flu. It was a H3N8 virus. Uh-huh. So there was, like, this big gap where um, the the major dominant strain was not the same as the one going around in 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus, a lot of people weren't as children, building up their immune system to that strain. There's a lot of different factors here as mm-hmm. to why it was bad. Yeah, I've been learning a lot of them. <laughs> um, one other one that is up for debate, um, <laughs> but is the one I think is interesting that like made me go, yes, I want to talk about this. 2009, um, there was a paper that was published uh, that proposed that quite a few fatalities uh, were increased by aspirin poisoning. Uh-huh. Um, which no one this even knew was when, a thing at the time. This is when you go skiing so much you die. No. Okay. Not aspirin. Oh, okay. Aspirin. Ah, I see. Yeah, so no one knew that you could even get poisoned by this at the time. <laughs> they didn't know this was a problem. How much aspirin do you have to take to get poisoned by it? Not as much as I thought. Wow. <laughs> I guess that's why they have baby aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So symptoms of aspirin poisoning, in case you wanted to know, are uh, nausea, abdominal pain, fast breath, fever, swelling of the brain and lungs, low blood sugar, cardiac arrest. So the same as falling in love. (laughs) Like really, really hard. (laughs) Really hard. Um, So the, the person who published this paper came to this conclusion um based on reports of symptoms um from those dying Mm -hmm. also reports of uh post-mortems that were available at the time and also the timing and the spike of deaths in october which happened shortly after the surgeon general of uh the u.s army and um the journal of american medical association both recommended very large doses of aspirin per day as part of treatment Oh. Uh, the levels they suggested would have produced hyper hyperventilation in like 33% of patients um, and like lung edema in 3%. Mm-hmm. So like, doesn't mean that necessarily everyone was getting that dosage, but what they're like, hey, give them this much might not have been good to follow. <laughs> um, and shortly before this, um, bare aspirin, they had their patent expire. Mm-hmm. So a lot of companies started quickly producing the drug, and there was a huge supply for people to access. Um, in 2010, uh, 
other people questioned whether this had any merit. Because they're like, well, in India, they had super high mortality rates, but they really had little or no access to this drug. Um, but the original researcher said, well, I'm not saying it's across the world, this <laughs> is the reason, but this is something that probably played a factor in the fact that we were drugging people wrong um, I, and not necessarily helping them. I love I love arguments like this. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure your your argument is really Americentric. And the guy's like, yeah, I know. That doesn't make it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought that that was um, an interesting thing, especially, you know, a lot of times the stuff we would do back then would do more harm than good. <laughs> But at least it was real medicine. Like, what did we have? Yes. We had aspirin and morphine. Like, which that was all we could use. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it does. Like, I mean, that is something that is still used to this day. Like, it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just we didn't know you could kill people by it, which seems to be the case for a lot of drugs we created. Now, uh, there's another thing with. Uh, I guess the outcome of the Spanish flu that is also up for debate. Ooh. I never knew the Spanish flu would cause so much debate. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, uh, the name alone raises a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, so it has been connected by some to the outbreak of encephalitis lethargica uh, in the 1920s. Um, this was a disease that was first described in 1917. Um, and is sometimes called the sleeping sickness. Uh, it causes inflammation of the brain and leaves some people in a statue-like condition, unable to move or speak. Until true love's keys. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, between 1915 and 1926, there was an epidemic of 5 million people affected, with a third of them dying from it. And it was across the world. It is the only outbreak of it to happen, and the cause is unknown. There's, like, different things like, well, you know, this is something that can be triggered by this, this, and this, but nothing that's like, well, why did 5 million people get it? Mm -hmm. And there's some researchers that believe um, this, the Spanish flu epidemic led to this disease becoming a thing. Like, however, the people uh -huh. were left affected. I mean, it can still happen now if you get, like, the flu really bad. Like, right. you can have lingering effects in your life. You can, mm -hmm. like, n sometimes not fully recover. Back then, that was quite often happening. Um, and there's some that believe w that it affected something in the body that led to this happening. But that's up for debate, and there's <laughs> no, like, concrete... People are very divided about this. So if you're a medical historian... Figure it out already. What's your yeah. problem? Well, Come on. It's really interesting to look at that. Like, five million people were affected, and they're really like, yeah, we don't know why. What are we paying you for? Gosh. And it's, it's like, it's something that still happens, like, every once in a while someone gets this. Mm -hmm. But there's never been, like, an outbreak. <laughs> like, no one knows why it happened. Spanish um, newspapers know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are things, you know, you think about, like, hundreds of years before that, that's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. People are like, yeah, everyone, you know, was running around naked being crazy. <laughs> Must have been a, you know, crazy disease or whatever. Like, okay, we don't know why. 
Mm-hmm. But 1900s, you start to be like, maybe we should know why. <laughs> we had photographs. We should probably know why. <laughs> now, uh, some historians today labeled the fa- uh, the Spanish flu outbreak as a forgotten pandemic. And we're telling them to shut up. We remember. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> well, the big thing is it, it did fade from public awareness very quickly over the decades. Um Especially until the arrival of new outbreaks like bird flu and things mm-hmm. in the 19, in like 1999, 2000s, etc. And Downton Abbey when it was still good. Yes. Yeah. Why do they consider it this? Why do they consider mm-hmm. it something that's forgotten? Uh, it was overshadowed. It took place really fast with, you know, the majority of people dying over nine months. During one of the largest wars in history, mm-hmm. um, where probably the second biggest, biggest at the time. Yes, yeah. yes. Where you know you're going to be paying attention to that probably a lot more. The delay in media coverage to start, and then just being overshadowed by war news, anyways. Right, right. Um, also, there were other pandemics of the time. You know, typhoid, yellow fever, cholera, diphtheria. These were things that people were dying from um so kind of got lost and it's like how we all kind of want to zone out politics nowadays they're all (laughs) zoning out people dying from diseases (laughs) you can only take so much open up ye old twitter in the morning flu death flu death flu death oh a puppy yeah a puppy um also as we talked about, it primarily affected young adults who were not just dying from the flu, but the war. So that was a lot of people dying and like a lost generation to kind of remember it. Right. And it's really hard to disentangle those two death counts. Yeah. I think a lot of times it probably gets confused. Right. Because they're soldiers dying of the flu in a military hospital because they caught it in a trench in France. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So how does that affect numbers, actually, Mm -hmm. of, like, who died where of what? (laughs) So all that goes into play of why it's kind of been muffled and lost and why most people probably could not tell you why it's called the Spanish flu. Um, (laughs) Now, currently, uh, there are 114 World Health Organization states that are working together. Uh, with six global influenza centers mm-hmm. that monitor and track flu activity worldwide. Yeah, I, I've played Pandemic, I know. Yeah. 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 Um, so even with advances in modern medicine, the, I want to say graphs, but like the, the things that they've looked at. The projections? Yes, the projections they've looked at. Um, a flu outbreak of this kind today would result in... Almost 200,000 to three and a half hundred thousand deaths in the U.S. alone. I should say I've never won Pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Happy New Year. There's no reason not to get a flu shot. They're very good for you. They're very, very good for you and everyone around you even more so. Yeah, yeah. Um So that's what I got. And with that, we're going to take a break. And maybe he'll have something happier to talk about.
welcome back, everybody. Hello. So, it is now my turn. Are you going to talk about puppies? I'm not going to talk about puppies. I'm going to talk about uh, a pivotal event of 1618, 400 years ago. Do a lot of people die? Uh, no one died. Oh! No one died in the second defenestration of Prague. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Darling, do you, do you know the definition of the word defenestrate? No. All right. Well, you're going to be in for a surprise soon. And everybody who does knows what's coming. I don't know what's coming. <laughs> so let's talk about Prague in the early 1600s to set the stage. Okay. It was the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. So pre pretty important place, all, all told. Uh, and also, of course, the Kingdom of Bohemia in land that is now known as the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. By the time we tell our tale, for over 60 years, princes within the empire had the right to determine the religion of their subjects. Okay. We are post-Reformation. In fact, we are in the counter-Reformation when the Catholic Church is trying to, to stamp out uh, the, the Reformation and reassert themselves as the only game in town. Town being Christendom. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the, the f Holy Roman Empire... And Bohemia, uh, as well, were ruled by the Habsburg kings, the famously inbred Habsburg kings. Okay. We're not going to talk about the worst of them, the, the royal portraits you look at, and you have to remember, that was the, the portrait artist making these guys look good. Uh -huh. But they're on the way there. Oh, goodness. They were Catholic, but the people of Bohemia were, were largely Protestant. Mm-hmm. Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II signed the Letter of Majesty in 1609, granting religious tolerance to Protestants and Catholics living in Bohemia, and set up a Protestant state church run by the estates, the, the rural nobility of Bohemia. Okay. Just sort of a live and let live deal. Don't want to cause any trouble, no friction. We're going to have some internal harmony because who knows what my cousins with their kingdoms are going to do. Let's, let's just be chill here. Okay. Rudolph II was a pretty interesting guy. He had a live lion and tiger roaming around in his castle. Oh, God. The reason we know this is because his financial record survived, including payouts to people injured by the lion and tiger <laughs> roaming around his <laughs> castle. Uh, he was an avid collector of, of the arts and esoterica, including perhaps the Voynich Manuscript, the, the legendary book on something uh, that I think uh, has, has had some really strong arguments put forth for what actually is in that book just this year. But I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, it's been solved. What is it? That's what I'm saying. I don't know. Okay. You need to do an episode on that. It, it's a book written in, in some manner of code with a lot of drawings of plants Mostly plants, also some people, some some uh, uh, alchemical and astrological business going on in there. Okay. Yeah. We know he definitely owned the, the Codex Gigas, or Gigas. It is the largest surviving uh, illuminated manuscript from the medieval period. Ooh. Uh, it has this big, creepy, dope-ass picture of the devil on one page. Yeah. So it's also called the Devil's Bible. Nice. 
Because among the many uh, books inside the Codex are many books of the Bible. Uh, Legend has it that it was written in one night by a monk who sold his soul to the devil in order to complete it so quickly. That sounds familiar. Uh, Yeah. A little devil went down to uh, Vienna, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Estimates say that writing it normally without infernal aid would have taken five nonstop years. So. Yeah. Maybe he was just writing it in secret and no one knew. (laughs) And then he was like, hey, I did this last night. Or maybe he was like, I finished this last night and people misinterpreted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how it is, though, those vows of silence, it makes communication really hard. Yeah. Very tricky. Uh, Rudolph II loved art. Uh, He he commissioned a lot of art, uh, not just erotic art, but like. Oh, my. The, the stuff he commissioned was more erotic than his contemporaries did. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, he, he kept the largest cabinet of curiosities in all of Europe and had to build a whole new wing in Prague Castle to house all of his collections and things. Goodness. Someone's a hoarder. <laughs> so in 1611, the, the Protestants of Bohemia petitioned for greater freedoms and Leopold of Austria invaded Bohemia with an army of 7,000. Mm-hmm. The Bohemians didn't like being invaded very much and decided they needed a new king. So uh, Rudolf's brother Matthias answered the call, uh, and his army put Rudolf under castle arrest as uh, uh, Matthias seized the crown of Bohemia and a few months later uh, became a Holy Roman Emperor himself. Ah. Now, Matthias continued Rudolf's sort of conciliatory policy against the backdrop of the continuing Counter-Reformation and managed to keep anyone from invading this time. So that's nice. Uh, Then he moved the capital of the Holy Roman Empire to Vienna and things started to change. Mm -hmm. Now, on May 16th, 1618, Matthias appointed his cousin Ferdinand II as king of Bohemia, and Ferdinand was a very active part of the Counter-Reformation. He, he was not one of these uh, religious tolerance, at least between Christians, kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, as Archduke of Austria, Ferdinand had appointed Catholic priests to serve in Lutheran churches. Uh, he expelled Protestant pastors and teachers from three cities in 1598, When the estates protested, he decreed that they had no power over religious affairs. So if you're a a member of one of the Bohemian estates that that does, there's a letter that says so, you're going to get pretty nervous right about now. Yeah. Uh, In 1599, he appointed military officers to install a Catholic priest in every town and convert peasants by force if necessary, and also burn prohibited books. Oh, boy. Books like the Bible written in vernacular languages rather than Latin. Ah, because we don't want no one to understand what we're saying. So, yeah, if you're, again, a a practicing Lutheran or a a member of the rural nobility who's running the the state Bohemian Protestant church, this is bad news. Bad news. This is bad news for you. In 1618, they're still trying to, to live their life, do, do their Lutheran thing, right? Because they, they're nervous about what's going to happen, but nothing's happened to them yet. Yeah. Until 
two Protestant churches that were being built on Ferdinand's holdings as king of Bohemia were ordered to, to end construction. And when uh, the, the estate said, hey, you, you can't do that, uh, he said, actually, I can. Also, you don't exist anymore. Ooh. He dissolved the Protestant Council of Estates. Ooh. So the dissolved council members had a meeting on the third floor of the Bohemian Chancellery on the morning of May 23rd, 1618, and invited four lords regent, me- members of the uh, uh, Catholic nobility, people who were, who were tight with uh, good old Ferdinand, mm-hmm. to ask which one of them was responsible for the emperor's decision. Oh. Trying to get down to, to business, see... What really went on to, so we can decide where to go from here. Mm-hmm. If, if you haven't listened to some of our other episodes on uh, religion and uh, post-Reformation politics, yeah, I just want to reiterate that this seems very strange in the modern day where I can go uh, out the door and see both a Catholic church and, if I lean right, a Protestant church. And nobody's throwing, you know, bricks at each other mm-hmm. in the neighborhood where we all recognize it is, it is a different tradition of, of the same religion, et cetera, et cetera. Well, well not always. When's the Small community I grew up in. Oh, no. <laughs> that is that is fair to say. <laughs> but it's a different thing when the people who run your churches can also raise armies. Yeah. It is a very, very different context, which is something popes haven't done for a long, long time. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we'll see it again. I really doubt that. I really, really do. Yeah. The the Protestants in this meeting that called this meeting, they're afraid for their lives if Ferdinand's agenda continues. Mm-hmm. They're they're just trying to keep on going on on the deal that they had until you know a week or so ago, and it might uh, be something that gets them labeled you know traitors to the king, traitors to the empire. Mm-hmm. Now the Catholics that that showed up to the meeting were afraid for their lives if these Protestants were out for revenge or a preemptive strike against such a a declaration. Mm-hmm. So. It's tense. Yeah. Uh, the, the Catholics wanted to confer with their superiors at court. Like, hey, you know, we just, just write down what you want and we will go talk about it and we'll send you a letter. A really nice letter that, that's answering all of your questions. Uh, the, the Protestants refused and they, they barred the door. <laughs> We're going to get this done today, folks. <laughs> Two of the Catholics were deemed too pious to be at fault and sent out the room. <laughs> like, mm, no, you're cool. You're cool with us. Uh, they, they did assure uh, the former uh, uh, estates, I guess, that no, 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 no. We, we represent or we respect the letter of majesty. It, it wasn't us. I promise. I'm going to go pray on this. We're cool. We're cool. <laughs> now the other two mm-hmm. and their secretary. Uh, that was, I guess, taking notes of this meeting for, for their benefit. Uh, the Those three admitted responsibility for the order and said, you know what? Do your worst. Give us any uh, uh, punishment you like. Fine. Uh, we're, we're in the right and we know it. Do whatever you want. 
They're expecting to, you know, be arrested, taken away. Those two guys that got let out the room, they're, they're going to write a letter and we'll, we'll be fine in the end. That's not what happened. This is when the defenestration happens. Okay. Defenestration is a word that, that just means throwing someone out a window. Oh. I'll remind you this happened on the third floor. Okay. Uh, so these three guys fell 70 feet. Okay. Broken glass uh, uh, falling around them. All three survived, uh, but there were some considerable injuries. Yeah. Uh, Catholic sources say that they were carried down by angels, which, oh. which is why they lived. Protestant sources say that they landed in a dung heap, which broke their fall. No reports from anybody who was there on the day mention either of those. <laughs> the dung heap story might sound more likely, but... It is worth noting that it didn't appear in print until after the angel story as a rebuttal. Yeah. I think they just fell on the hard ground and got really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it could be any of those three. The, the secretary, who was not noble, uh, eventually did become so. He Ooh. was uh, uh, ennobled and given the title Baron of Highfall. <laughs> Highfall sounds like a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the uh, sequel to Skyfall. It's what your grandma gets you when she thought she was getting Skyfall. Yeah, mm -hmm. but she loved Transmorphers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, grandma. This is just a, a colorful little story on its own, right? Just just a tale of a, a misunderstanding and a lot of broken bones. Uh, but it was the spark that ignited the Thirty Years' War. Oh! Again, what I said about uh, uh, the Counter-Reformation being a, a really fraught time, about these matters being life or death, incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, Ferdinand was elected Holy Roman Emperor the following year in 1619, and uh, in that city, at the same time, he was deposed as king of Bohemia and replaced with a Protestant king. Mm -hmm. uh, Ferdinand and the Holy Roman Empire reasserted control in 1620 at the Battle of White Mountain, where they outnumbered the, the Bohemians roughly two to one. Uh -huh. The Bohemian army was led by one of the defenestrators. Mm -hmm. uh, and after only about an hour of battle... 4,000 Protestants were either killed or captured. Oh, boy. Uh, following the Battle of White Mountain, Roman Catholicism was the dominant religion in Bohemia, and then uh, the Czech Republic, to fo which followed it ever since, at least until our, our late 20th century secularization mm -hmm. and, you know, Soviet secular influence as well. Yeah. But up until then, it was a Catholic country from that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, following the battle and a period of looting, of course, uh, the ringleaders of the Bohemian Uprising, the ones that could be found, were executed uh, starting bright and early at 5 a.m. in the Old Town Square execution. Oh. You know it's a good execution when it has a name. The Old yeah. Town Square execution. Uh, there were 24 beheadings and three hangings oh. for the curious. Now, that, that was... The, the Bohemian Uprising portion of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War had other 
segments, other chapters, Mm -hmm. each one sort of starting the next in a chain of dominoes for roughly 30 years. Yeah. Uh, It is one of the most destructive conflicts in history, leaving over 8 million dead. But that all deserves an episode of its own, at least one. Yeah. Uh, I'm only here to talk about the defenestration. Yeah. So I guess that's that's my story. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. People died? What are you talking about? Some people break glass at New Year's. You said no one died. People died. A whole lot of people died. Not on the day they didn't. <laughs> Go back to the record. There was a pause. This might be our deadliest episode ever. There was a pause where I considered the, the finer points of the exact wording of the question and answer. Let's start off the new year with a big old mailbag, why don't we? Okay. We'll be right back with that. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. It's the end of our New Year's episode, and Ryan Seacrest won't leave me alone. Ryan Seacrest, get out of our apartment. Stop it. I don't know you. That's not, that's my purse. Ryan Seacrest, get out of my wife's purse. You're too big. You don't fit. But we have some things that I, I enjoy much better, and that's letters from listeners Ooh. like you, yes. like Joe. Our prompt for this episode was we, we wanted to know people's favorite thing from 2018. Yeah. And Joe, uh, this was the year they came out as non-binary and found a lot of supportive friends uh, on the other side of that that difficult uh, but important personal task. So congratulations. And also, good job being the best man for your best friend. That's fun. Yeah. I wouldn't know for personal experience, but it sounds fun. <laughs> we also got photos of Muffin. Muffin and Muffin's face on a pillow. It's like two muffins in I one in that picture. face on a pillow. Would you want her face on one of those like uh, sequin pillows? I will take her face on any type of pillow. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Erica wrote in uh, answering the same prompt. Uh, and their favorite thing from 2018 is finishing the D&D campaign they started DMing last year with their friends. An endeavor that everyone miraculously survived. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Erica. Thanks, Erica. Congratulations. Sam writes in uh, answering that prompt, and you may remember that uh, Sam's highlight of 2017 was achieving some of his fitness goals. Yeah. That continued. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Good job, Sam. Sam also spent part of the year, uh, part of his free time at least, participating in community theater, and at the end of the this Good old classical farce. Uh, His character wound up in his birthday suit. Oh, my. So he got to show off all that progress he's so proud of. That's actually kind of great. (laughs) Well, congratulations, Sam. That's awesome. Point number three, Sam's a new uncle. Aw. Or is about to be. Maybe that'll be uh, what he says next year. Aw. Aw. Final Gamer wrote in and is very happy that 2018 is almost over. Uh, But the best thing that happened for them this year is that their best friend of 14 years finally uh, moved to their country and lives close by and they get to hang out. And uh, it's also just a nice situation. 
for their friend. So that's yeah. awesome. Good for the both yay, of you. Yay socialization. Yeah. Yeah. Socialize everything. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, Jeff wrote in for the first time. Glad to hear from you, Jeff. And thank you for showing us pictures of Lily. You're a kitty cat. She was lovely, and I'm glad you had so much time together. Jeff shares some very kind words and also a show suggestion, which we're going to keep under our hats. Shh. For when we want a, a politically fraught and sad one. Ooh, we love those. Which is surprisingly often, as it turns out. <laughs> but Jeff's answer to our prompt uh, was that he landed a job as a brewer in Minneapolis, which means he is a fantastic baseball player. I don't think he means that brewer. No, he is actually brewing <laughs> beer and seems to really, really enjoy the job. That's awesome. That is great news. Thank you very much. Uh, one fine cat wrote in and realized they never answered two of our past prompts <gasps> about favorite moral panic and favorite fashion fad. Shock. Uh, so they do that now. Um, with talking about the hat pin peril. Uh, during the 1900s and 1910s, it was common for women to have ridiculously large hats. Uh, that needed ridiculously large hat pins. Mm -hmm. um, and they were so insane that they were often like a foot long and very sharp because you had to stab through a hat. Uh, <laughs> and this became a problem when you realize you got a weapon in your hat and that's pretty great. <laughs> um, so you don't have to put up with like pervy men making uh, sexual advances at you. You can mm -hmm. just pull out your hat pin. Yeah. We should go back to hat pins. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find a way to use a taser to like keep any of your your uh, accessories on, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like a tiny sword. <laughs> it's kind of great. Press coverage uh, for uh, these petticoated swashbucklers was was mostly positive. Uh, there were definitely a few accidental deaths and incidents. Uh, such as when a dude's mistress and wife got into a hat pin duel that had to be broken up by yeah. the police. The loser had to stay with the guy. It, it was really fraught. Yeah. Yeah. Pervy men usually are, run the government, and in this case they did, so they used it as justification to crack down on hat pins, which could not be longer than nine inches. Which is just like, why nine inches? Why did they pick that? <laughs> You can still stab somebody pretty good with a nine-inch hat. Yeah, pin. most knives are that length. Like, come <laughs> on. Or shorter. One Fine Cat's favorite part of 2018. Girlfriend. Girlfriend's nephews finally started calling him uncle. Oh, that's cute. Very that's very cute. That's very nice. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for writing in. Yes. If you would like to write into our show, where can they do that? You can do that at historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And that's where we want to hear your, your questions, your comments, your corrections, show suggestions like Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, our answers to our regular prompts. Darling, what would you like to hear for next time? I don't have one. So why don't we keep this New Year's theme going? Okay. Tell us what you're looking forward to in 2019. I love a good cop-out. So yeah. This will have nothing probably to do with my episode, but it sounds nice. I want to know what's going on, people. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to hearing that too, frankly. Yeah. 
But those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. I, I am looking forward to a, a great new year, another 26 episodes from us. Oh, yeah. Uh, give or take, if we have a weird. So things I don't know, happen. Things happen. But <laughs> that's the plan anyway, 26. What was your favorite part of 2018? In, in what sphere? Like personally, like globally? Whatever you want. I mean, there a lot of good things did happen this year. Pakistan, as part of a, a, a huge anti-discrimination law or package of laws, included uh, basic rights for transgender people. Hey. That's great. Uh, the Republic of Ireland divested from fossil fuels. Cool. That's pretty great. Mm-hmm. And in, in personal life, I mean, the some of the, the best days that I've had the most like meaningful and uh, uh, I guess rewarding ones were, were was the time that we got to spend with our little goddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love those days and yeah. I really love her. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Donald? What was your favorite part of 2018? Spending it with you and the dog. Aww. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I, I know you really liked our birthday present. I did. Which, I, which I has been on the show twice. Well, yeah, like we gotta, we gotta, you know, take a nice small so y'all, trip. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, I got a new job. That's a big which one is for you. Huge change of of <laughs> many things, mostly all good. Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to end the year. <laughs> <laughs> Last four months have been pretty good on that they've front. Been, they've yeah. been going pretty okay. Didn't some animals become not like endangered anymore? Yes, there there are several animals removed from the endangered species list. That's great. That is great, including the world's smallest fox. Yeah. Yes. And and yeah, we've gotten to see our goddaughter. Mm-hmm. I've got to finally see the Killers perform. That was pretty great. <laughs> That's true. Dirty Computer came out this year. Yeah, it's a good you year. got. How is Janelle Monae not on your list? Transformative. <laughs> but uh, for all the. Many things happening in the world. It's been a good year. If you know where to look, there's bright spots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We were in the middle of housekeeping, though. Yeah, we were. (laughs) So, yeah, a rating and review. We would really appreciate it. We love to read them. Tell a friend. Tell those friends. And then we'll get more people like Jeff. Hi. Jeff was a referral from a friend. Says so right in that email. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for joining us here on New Year's Day. I I plan to keep bringing the same brand of, of... engaging uh, information into 2019, and I, I really hope you'll share it with us. I plan to keep bringing uh, lots of stories of death and mutilation. <sighs> <laughs> I'll try to find something uplifting, I guess. So that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.